the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Friday. We are guest-free today. We're going to talk about parenting. We're going to talk about marriage in this first hour and church tax exemption. You're listening to The Common Good. Everybody, welcome to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You all know I love Friday, but did I tell you I love that today is Friday? Oh, yeah, we do know that. But I still wanted to tell it to you. Yeah, but wasn't your question, but do you know? It's a radio thing. Like, Don't you know, but you still know I love Friday. Uh, that's <laughs> it's my thing. <laughs> very confusing. <laughs> is that a radio thing? thing? Confusion. That's Get them off the trail fast. <laughs> the common good. Confusion on Fridays. Here we go. <laughs> All within the first 30 seconds, too, by the way. You can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. Find us on Twitter at Common Good Talk. Or can they? (laughs) We're going to change the name of it every day. Find us on TikTok. (laughs) But you can find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, (laughs) rate, and review. We're grateful for those of you who do it. Well, what we said earlier in the uh, open there is that we are guest-free. You and I get to do lots of talking today. That just that excited some of our listeners and others of them. <laughs> Have a great say, day. That's the, that's the sound of radios across Chicagoland getting just turned off. off. <laughs> just them again. Nah. Other stations try to figure out, why did our ratings go up? Right at, <laughs> Saw a massive spike. Four. <laughs> uh, wanted to start off with a uh, what I found to be a sobering study. Uh, This was actually off of a website called studyfinds.org, and it says this. uh, The modern family, average parent spends just uh, five hours face-to-face with their kids, not per day, per week. Yikes. So this came out of London. Let me give you some of the background. Oh, London. Never mind. They don't like their children over there. (laughs) Because of all the fish and chips. (laughs) Have you seen what's going on with the royal family? (laughs) Okay. The concept of a close-knit family, we're off to a great start today, is quickly becoming an antiquated notion. A recent survey of a 1,000 British parents found that the average parent spends a mere five hours per week communicating face-to-face with their children. More than half of the surveyed moms and dads with children under the age of 18 said they feel, quote, distant from their kids in Mm -hmm. all. Listen to what they blame. 43% 43% blame their measly family time on their kids spending too much time in front of the television with another 51% saying their kids spend too much time in their bedrooms. Hmm. Another 44% said their familial disconnect is a result of their kids logging inordinate amounts of time on their phones during traditional family time in the evening. So let me stop there. Uh does it surprise you that five hours a week in the study? And what are your thoughts on kind of uh, the blame that the parents were giving here in the survey? I'd be really curious to know how this compares to the United States. Mm-hmm. My guess is it's probably not all that different. I wouldn't think so. I don't uh, really love the blaming posture. Like if <laughs> that I'm, seems weird to me. And maybe I'm a little old school in this. Uh, but the subtext seems to s- sound a little bit like, 
I, I don't know what to do. They keep logging on during family time. Like, well, then take them take away. Their you're phone. The, you're the parent. Like that's that's the first thing I thought of when I read. Some of them blame it on them spending too much time in their bedroom. Tell them to get out of their bedroom. Take the door off the hinges. <laughs> Is that not a good idea? No, no. Certain times of day, I suppose. Uh, or the 44% said it's because their kids log an ordinate amount of time on their phone or in front of the television. Turn the TV off. Yeah. Uh, You're still the parent, I think, right? That is the overall message here. Listen to this stat, too. The study commissioned by Cadbury Heroes. Are you a Cadbury egg fan? Cadbury eggs, yeah. That's what what commissioned the study. I'm not a fan of those. That's a mistake. If you could choose Cadbury egg or Peeps, which would you choose? Oh, my uh, gosh. That's like, would you rather win a million dollars or have ice picks shoved up your toenails? (laughs) Which one's the ice picks? The Peeps? Yes. So I'm going to go out. I'm going to say I don't like either. Well, Okay, that's fine, I yeah. guess. But to compare the jelly two. jelly beans guy at Easter. <laughs> yeah, but. A straight jelly. You said it like what you were saying was gangster. <laughs> it's but it's hard It's hard to sound like tough and you're like, I'm a jelly I'm a jelly belly man myself. I do like that. You're like, it's either a million dollars or ice picks in your eyes. It's me. That's a little bit how I feel. Ah, I won't go there. Never mind. <laughs> so anyway, nearly half of surveyed parents said they only talk to their kids for a maximum of four hours per week. I read this, and there's more stats. 54 actually said they would love to spend more time with their children. Well, then do it. Yeah. So what do we say? <laughs> let's pretend. Let's say that I think probably what you and I are guessing. Uh, oh, I didn't read the, the end of the stat by the Cadbury Heroes people. Uh, the Cadbury people who said this, they also found that the average youngster starts to really avoid his or her parents around the age of 13. Oh, man. A significant 73% of respondents said their relationship with their children really changed once their sons and daughters became teenagers. So we've got people out there listening. I've got teenagers. Uh, You and I have both worked with teenagers and your parents. Paint a picture for parents out there, Ian, how this can be different. How you don't have to just spend five hours a week with your kid. How you could set a different model within your house. What that could even look like. Well, I think the article actually makes some suggestions. It says to rectify this problem, over 80% of parents have taken an active interest in their children's favorite activities in an Mm. effort to reconnect. For example, 20% of parents have learned how to play the popular online video game Uh. Fortnite. Uh, 39% said they have gotten involved with their child's hobbies. Another 33 have listened to their child's favorite bands or musical artists. Comically, 25% have even tried to adopt youthful slang words such as dope or YOLO. Are those youthful slang words? Uh, they're not current. No. <laughs> I mean, Maybe when we were I was going to say, they're about a decade too late. But, I mean, 80% based on this study, that's pretty high. Yeah. It does still really bum me out, though, a little bit, that 20% of parents surveyed in this particular study said, nah, I'm not going to, nah. <laughs> I'm not yeah. going to take an interest in my – and I realize I'm in a much different stage. My kids are two and one. So for me, I realize, um, at least in terms of like family rhythms, I'm in a different place where I can say, nope, TV's done. Yep. I realize for you having high schoolers, that's probably got to be a little different. But it's, it's still a little bit same the same. principle. Because here's what I've learned. Uh, I have a 16-year-old, a 12-year-old, and a 10-year-old. Yeah. Their default, okay, their default is to the phone or the television. right. right. But the second I say to them, not 100% of the time, but generally if I go, hey, do you want to do X with me? Do you know what they do? They put their phone away. Oh, really? Or they, not every time. Sometimes they roll their eyes or whatever. But if I say to my son, hey, bud, do you want to go throw baseball? If it's nice out, not snowy and 30 degrees, he goes for it. Uh, If I say to my younger one, hey, do you want to play a game? Yes. The other day I came home and looked at my 16-year-old who had a lot of homework, and I said, hey, let's you and I go out to dinner. You know what she did? Hmm. She put her phone away. 
She put her books away, and we went out to dinner. Do you think that's normal, or have you done other work to cultivate that level of responsiveness? Because they're, like, excited to have dinner with you or play catch. some people out there who probably haven't done this over their years growing up, it probably will be feel forced. But I still, gosh, I hope I'm not overly optimistic about this. I think that most kids and teenagers, even if they roll their eyes at you, are Mm. still going to want their parents' uh, parents' attention – uh, just think about how you were as a teenager, right? You wanted your parents to affirm you. You wanted them to show interest in what you did. Yeah. Like, uh, so maybe a simple thing is like, even if you've never played the sport, help coach your kid's team or take a class with them. My daughter and I went and did yoga together the other day. No kidding. Because she said, Dad, you want to go try yoga? Yeah. Sure. I could Which, barely walk the next day, but sure. But that's got to be such a dream, though, too, to be yes. asked by your own kid, like, hey, dad, do you want to blank? Any, yes. any, even if you're like, I have no interest in that, no. but gosh, I love you. Let's go for it. Yeah. So what we'd encourage you out there is just don't fall into the trap of don't be passive. Like, oh, yeah, my right, kids right. are on their phone and the TV all the time. You are the parent. You yeah, put right. that really well. <laughs> you're the parent. Be the parent. And there's going to come a day when your kids aren't in your house. So yeah. Uh, take advantage of it. A lot of times my kids, you want to know why they're on their phone? Because I'm on my phone. Mm. Uh, or I'm watching TV. And that's okay sometimes, but yeah, totally. sometimes look in the mirror. So anyway, uh, I found this to be an eye-opening study. Five hours face-to-face with their kids per week. We've got to do better than that. We'd love your opinion at our Facebook page, The Common Good uh, Radio Show. Coming up next, Christianity Today ran a bit of a fascinating article about the hidden cost of tax exemption hmm. and what that does for churches. We're going to discuss that as pastors coming up next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us on this Friday afternoon. Hopefully your work week is ending up. Got big plans for the weekend. We're glad that you are joining us. Uh, If you're perusing Facebook over the weekend, just kind of killing time, you know where you could go? The Common Good Radio Show. Mm. There you can find articles. Wow. Uh, You can find humorous pictures of Ian. Just lots of them. They're just all over our our page. So, uh, Are they? (laughs) Whatever gets you there. Hmm. Uh, You could go to- (laughs) Even uh, if it's deception, Brian. Our Twitter page, at Common Good Talk. We're on the radio. That's false advertising. And quickly start putting some pictures up. Slander. Go ahead and get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Before we talk about churches and tax exemption, let me tell you about something going on at In Touch Ministries. The new year is underway, and our friends at In Touch Ministries want to bless you uh, with a compliment, <laughs> a compliment, a complimentary wall calendar. Are you messing with me? No, I am not. <laughs> I have like this stick in my. I can't get by. Complimentary wall calendar called "Blessed to Be the Church." featuring Charles Stanley's original photography of churches around the world, an inspirational Bible verse from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and a motivational quote from Dr. Stanley accompany each photo. Get yours today absolutely free at 1160hope.com slash contest, and everyone who signs up will be entered to win a copy of the Charles Stanley Life Principles Bible. So sign up today at 1160hope.com slash contest. That's 1160hope.com slash contest complimentary thank you very much I'm trying to help out <laughs> it's that it's that voice again that you use when you're correcting me i was not a correct i'm a guide i am I'm a guide. simply steering you towards Do you know when like you stare at health. something and you're like i have to get it right i have to get it right and then that doing that means you're likely going to get it wrong that's what just happened in that situation right what's well, the benefit brian of having eyes that shake back and forth that it's hard to stare at anything so i don't <laughs> it's very self just... <laughs> I mean, it's true, and yeah. you know. I'm sorry. 
I don't think it's your fault. Earlier in January, the cover story at Christianity Today is titled this, The Hidden Cost of Tax Exemption. Churches may someday lose their tax-exempt status. Would that be as bad as it sounds? This is written by a man by the name of Paul Matsko. Uh, And so if you're not aware, uh, churches... Uh, have a lot of tax breaks, one of which is, right, you don't, we do. Oh, boy, I got to call somebody. So pastors do, clergy do, but also churches, they don't pay property tax, for instance, on their buildings. Uh, And so let me read the beginning of this, and I would love just kind of... uh, Do you want to clarify what pastors get, too, by the way? Uh, Pastors get something called a housing allowance, which is uh, which is a portion of your salary that does not be does not get taxed. And so that's always been in the tax code. Kind of the thought is that clergy uh, are, are using their homes. They're getting together with people. And so it's kind of something you could write off and it really helps come tax time. Yeah. Um, you're again, you're like, you, we get what? <laughs> yeah. Oh, hold on. Let me get a pen. Yeah. And a while ago, people used to, pastors used to be able to, uh, opt out of social security. Uh, you still not, can. Now you, they're a lot more strict about it now. Yeah. A lot and... more strict before you used to just be able to go, I don't want to do it. No, thanks. Right. Now you got to really your integrity is on the line now, much more so. so. Well, and there's a uh, a limit too once you've been ordained. Yes. And you have a, I think it's a year still, right? Yeah. So and I you... don't trust myself to save enough for my ta- for my retirement. That I'm staying <laughs> that's in Social what I, That's what I hear a lot, even if Social Security isn't there by the time exactly. we retire. At least, at least I get to live now believing it will be. So. <laughs> Let me read the beginning of this article. In theory, churches should make attractive neighbors. They are places of prayer, worship, and good works. When you see a sign pop up in an empty field announcing a new church construction, you might think of the new families that will move to the neighborhood, the children who will attend the youth group, the volunteers who will run the vacation Bible school. But that's not how suburban town of Stafford, Texas responded. The city council instead instituted a review process to make it harder for churches to build there, preferring a factory or big box retailer takes the space instead. When that didn't work, the council instructed the city lawyer to see if he could find a way to keep churches out. A city councilman told the Los Angeles Times, I don't hate God. I'm not against America and apple pie. But he insisted churches were a problem for one reason. They don't pay their share of taxes. Zero revenue, the councilman said. Somebody has to pay for the police, the fire, and the school. This feeling that churches don't contribute to the common good is not uncommon in America. What are your thoughts about this? This is a big deal, especially when you talk to people who don't go to church, where much less less church culture that when they learn about this, this does bother a lot of people. So I'm wondering your thoughts on this. Oh, yeah. I've had a lot of conversations with Have people you? that are bothered by this. I mean, the article actually uses the word that I hear a lot, that the church is sort of parasitical. Like, oh, wait a minute. You're benefiting from all these things without paying the same ratio, the same portion. The, what does the article say? Fair share yeah. uh, of taxes. This is, I mean, I've had this conversation a number of times over the years. And uh, how do you answer that? Like, do you agree with them? Or are you like, hey, it Hopefully, we as churches are serving a common good, yeah. that we're adding value to a community while not into the tax part of the community. We're adding a value that seemed to be much more accepted before, generation ago, right. two generations ago. Right. I'm wondering if you even believe that now. Yeah, I, I tend to just sort of try to create a diversion and then run away before <laughs> the game. Um, and very fast, Brian. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm out of here. No, I, I think that the, it's it's worth – 
listening to the legitimacy of their arguments. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we do ourselves any favors by getting really defensive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and to a degree, I think that maybe they have a point, to yeah. be honest. This is a very long article that it we're reading really from, is. but it actually – It's actually a, part one of two, actually. So. Right. And it takes a much deeper dive into some of the history. And this is not like an – this isn't a – a new accommodation for churches either, which is, you know, some would argue is part of the problem. Um, it should be interesting to have like an actual mayor or councilman or something on the show to talk about that. The town of, uh, I'm in Downers Grove, the town of Woodridge is notoriously really hard on churches. Right. Yeah. There's uh, a couple out here in the Western suburbs yeah. that are known for that. Yeah. Let me read that. Kind of we were saying, what's the benefit for towns of churches? And yeah. he says this, the standard defense for the religious tax exemption is to emphasize the, quote, spillover effects or the halo effect of having a church in the neighborhood. For example, many religiously affiliated daycares and after-school programs yeah, open their right. doors, meaning that the tax subsidy given to the organization benefits all children who attend regardless of this. And even so simple as like your church, the Yellow Box, has thousands of people in a weekend, fair mm-hmm. to say. Yeah. You're in close to a lot of uh, businesses in Naperville, and so the theory is also people are going to go eat somewhere. They're going to go do this. And so yeah. while well, you might not be paying taxes on your building – you're helping the local economy. That's kind of the opposite side of the spectrum that says. Um, well, yeah, and it, uh, it is unique to, you know, places that are set up like the Yellow Box. But mm-hmm. on any given week, we're hosting conferences yes. and workshops and book tours. You guys and, do a great job of allowing the town to use your building, not just your own Christian events. Well, and that's kind of twofold. You know, I think a lot of that was um, initiated, that vision kind of cast by leadership. But like our facilities guy, Mike Charta and Ann Smith, they, like they do uh, an incredible job of coordinating all that because yep. someone's got to, you know, be someone's got to be the liaison, yep. not only yep. to coordinate with potential clients, but then to actually make it happen. That's yep. a lot of chairs and tables and yep. cleaning. And, you know, like Steve Cooney, our sound guy is there a lot of times all day Saturday hosting an event like it does require a lot. But I think in general, the, the, the neighboring community sees that as a benefit. Absolutely. Now, there is a trade off for churches. And that's what this article we would encourage you to go read this article, because one of the trade offs of churches, this is kind of where the Johnson Amendment comes where yeah, it says right. if you want to re- keep your tax exempt status, you can't, um, you can't. I can't get up in the pulpit and endorse a candidate or legislation. Right. Uh, I've got to stay uh, pretty politically neutral, and you do too. Uh, and the the carrot out there is usually you can lose your tax exempt status if yeah, you do. Right, right. Uh, and so let me just read how he closes this. Uh, Paul Matsko, who is a historian of American religion and politics, he says this. He closes this first part of the article this way. Uh, it might not be such a bad thing to lose tax-exempt status. We should consider, at the very least, the cost of maintaining this kind of cultural privilege. The true church of God, after all, is not reliant on its special status in the tax code. We can walk by faith and not by government largesse. Hmm. That's a that's a that's quite the stand to take there. This would change the landscape of churches. Yeah, if you were to lose your tax exempt status. So I'm uh, sure th- yeah, I'd really love to know what people think on the I Facebook page. I do. Please, we we always push you there, but we'd really like to know what you think about this one. Uh, this article will be up at our Facebook page. Go ahead there and let us know uh, what do you think uh, about tax exempt status and churches. I think this is a uh, issue that's only going to get ramped up. It's not going to go away. Well, coming up next. Uh, 
two things about uh, some famous Christian authors who have written marriage books that I wanted to highlight. We're going to do that next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everyone. Ian Simpkins here. And after we had this marriage conference with Thrivent and two other local churches, it kind of piqued my interest to learn more about this organization. We had such a good response with them at the conference. I was kind of interested in seeing what else they did. And so they actually provided me with this list of like 12 or 13 different topics that they offer free workshops for people that want to be wise with money and live generously. And the thing that was crazy is that each of these topics were things that people in my church were actually asking me, things that I didn't really know how to talk about. And so they offered numerous free workshops for the people in our church to help them be wise with money and to live generously. And let me tell you, it was this really beautiful sort of no strings attached kind of a, we want to help you do this better. And that was kind of the continuation of my relationship with Thrivent and being really grateful for the ways that they were coming alongside us and the local churches around us. And if you're interested at all in learning more, I cannot encourage you enough to head to Thrivent.com today. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. We really want you, if you, if you listen, especially the last segment, if not, go back on the podcast. We just did an article about uh, tax exemption and churches. And the article, uh, the, the author kind of uh, puts out there that maybe churches should uh, would be better off losing their tax exemption. And you and I both said we'd really like to know what people think about that. So... Uh, that's why we have a Facebook page. Go ahead and read that uh, article. Give us your feedback. You could do so on our Facebook page at the Common Good uh, Radio Show. If you missed that or any of our shows, you can find them on our podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Go ahead, subscribe, rate, and review. And uh, thanks for those of you who do listen to the podcast. So let me tell you about the Global Leadership Network. The Global, Global Leadership Network invites you to inspire your continued leadership growth at the GLS Next Event Series coming up next Tuesday, February the 4th, with uh, fresh, actionable insights for your leadership journey. Hearing from Nona Jones, Facebook's head of global faith-based partnerships, and Jason Dorsey, a prolific speaker and researcher on Gen Z and millennials. GLS Next is hosted by Danielle Strickland and will be held, held in South Barrington starting at 2 p.m., next Tuesday. You can get your tickets today at globalleadership.org slash events. That's globalleadership.org slash events. Uh, there's a well-known marriage Christian Christian marriage book called Love and Respect. You're, I'm assuming, familiar with it? I am. And uh, did you read it? This would have come out, this would have come out right about when you were getting married, probably, or well, maybe a little no. bit before. Yeah, I think it came out a good deal before that, didn't it? I don't know. Everything in my mind is three or four years ago. But yeah, it's probably. Oh, wait a minute. We did it in a small group like 12 years ago. I was going to say. Yep, yep. I'm getting that age now. <laughs> ah, it just happened, didn't it? Uh, oh, that's really Yeah, funny. published in 2004. Closer to my marriage than yours. Yes, right. <laughs> uh, it was written by uh, Emerson Egerich. And uh, you and I both have probably uh, used it in teaching settings or premarital counseling. Um because uh, the basic premise of love and respect is uh, that men most desire respect and women most desire love. And so uh, when you read this book, uh, it works its way through that. What does it look like for a man? Uh, how does he feel respected? 
Uh, and for a woman, how does how do they best feel loved? And and the one of you know the kind of the premise of the book is if we could get these deep needed issues uh, understood in a marriage, we would be able to uh, you know the wife would show the husband the the respect that 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 fuels him, and the, and the husband would show the love and care that fuels the wife. That is is that a fair assessment of love and respect? Would you say? I you know I don't even really remember. remember. I've I've definitely not read it cover to cover. I certainly skimmed it maybe at undergrad or in my first year as a pastor, but yeah, it's it's been at least a decade and a half. To be and honest. so Egrets is president of Love and Respect Ministries out of Rockford, uh, Michigan, uh, a nonprofit that conducts marriage seminars and conferences. It was founded in 2000 and brings in close to $800,000 a year in revenue from sales and resources and services. Uh, and so what you might be wondering, why are you talking about love and respect? Well, it's a, it's a big book that many of us have read. It has shaped a lot of the marriage talk in the evangelical world over the last 15 years. Uh, and there has been this kind of firestorm over just the last couple of days uh, by a, a Christian marriage and sex blogger named Sheila Ray Gregor. Uh, and she said this, that the concept in love and respect uh, one of the main themes, specifically giving a husband, quote, unconditional respect can lead to a happy marriage, has actually contributed to a, abuse in marriages. Oof. So she wants to focus on the family, which originally published the book, uh, to drop its endorsement. And Egrich is fired back. He rejects any claim that love and respect has contributed to abuse. He believes instead that the book and the ministry uh, have helped thousands of couples. And so uh, the book has kind of come back out. I'm wondering, as you've read through this or just kind of thought about it, do you think, does she have a point? Uh, or is it a lot more nuanced, which you're going to tell me it's a lot more nuanced. But <laughs> what do you think about this back and forth that's been going on, especially over Twitter, I believe? I mean, to uh, make some statement that it's impossible that this book has been used in any sort of right. unhealthy or unhelpful way. I mean, look at what we've seen throughout history with the Bible. You can mm-hmm. you can make it say whatever you want, and has been used, unfortunately, to contribute horrific atrocities. So to me, it's not it's not outside of the realm of possibility at all that any any book could be used. Again, not being uh, remarkably familiar with it, I do think sometimes books of this particular posture. And again, Brian and I aren't marriage counselors or therapists or any of that. I'm sure there's uh, much more uh, brilliant people out there that could weigh in on this. They tend to sort of live in broad strokes and stereotypes a little bit. Now, I don't know anyone that doesn't want to be both loved and respected. Yep. And that's probably even true that maybe at some point in history, some of these stereotypes fit for the majority of people. But you and I were even talking off air where, you know, sometimes you're like, oh, I feel like I'm maybe more in the love category or maybe I'm, yeah. and my wife is more in the respect category. Also, part of me just wants to say, um, why can't it just be both? Like, why Why do we have to say... That always struck me about the book when we went through right. it and we read it. Because I remember my wife and I discussing the book going, I almost feel like there are parts of the description of the wife that more fit me. And there are parts of the husband that fit me in his descriptions and vice versa. And it... And then I remember being in a small group where one couple was like, yeah, this fits us perfectly. But then there was the next couple was like... We feel the opposite. Yeah, this couldn't be more far off. We feel the opposite. And and I think uh, that was kind of the feel that I got and something that I got uh, from a lot of people. Hmm. Do you even think – I I don't know how to ask this question. Just uh, this dichotomy between love and respect, do you even find that helpful or is that – I remember reading it going, I don't actually buy into the premise of this, but – 
maybe I'm missing something or uh, what do you think about that? Um, I tend to think things like the love languages are actually more helpful because even when you get to something as nebulous, I know the book unpacks a little bit, but how someone even feels love or we might say receives love is as vastly different as our personality styles and our family of origin and, you know, the systems that we're comfortable and shaped by. So I I think to simply say, Oh, what they need from you is love. You know, I, I, I've met with a number of guys who have, shared that they have this growing chasm between them and their wife and how they're like doing all of these things for their wife. And I'll ask them, well, what's your wife's love language? Oh, I have no idea. I've never heard of that before. I just found the love, the five love languages to be a little more helpful. It's really helpful. But a lot of times the the disconnect can feel like I'm doing what I think I'm supposed to be doing to love this person. I'm doing what the book has suggested, but they don't know how to, or in what ways they don't know the baggage that they're bringing to those interactions and those disagreements. So, you know, I, I think, I, I tend to have sort of a, a wide tent when it comes to saying, yeah, I could learn something from this book. I don't yeah. know that I would recommend it wholesale or say that every word in it is you know infallible. But and if you're not familiar with the book, you might think to yourself, where did they even come up with love and respect? And the whole premise behind the book, the main idea of his work is based on a verse uh, found in the book of Ephesians that says, however, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. And uh, so that's where he gets it. And then he goes on in this article to say, of course, women also need respect and men also need love. But he believes women primarily need love above respect and men primarily need respect above love. So he would never say he makes a point to say it's not one or the other, but it's what's primary. But again, that always has felt to me like a pretty broad brush. Well, maybe we'll uh, do this another time because I've actually preached on that uh, exact passage Uh and unpacked a little bit of some of arguably what the grammatical structure would have been and how we have um, throughout history possibly misunderstood what's really being said there and in what way in terms of priority and blah, 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 blah. So maybe uh, maybe that'll be a conversation for another time. Yeah, so again, we would love to hear what you've got to say. Go ahead to our Facebook page, uh, The Common Good Radio Show, and ask, uh, uh, kind of give your feedback on this. Maybe you've read the book. Maybe it was helpful for your marriage. It wasn't helpful um, we would love to continue that dialogue because, again, where this article lands is that both Egrich and um, and the the lady who's who's going get not going against them but is pushing back, they both are very clear. We want nobody to be abused. We want you. Egrich yes, says if right. you're, if there's abuse, get out. I've always said that. So he's like making sure they're not characterizing him in a way that's not true. That's good. Uh, but it, this concept of love and respect and how our husband and wife uh, feeling most. Um, uh, supported and loved by their by their spouse, I think is an interesting one. So go to our Facebook page, give us your feedback on that. We would uh, we would love to hear it. Uh, well, coming up next, uh, the ten most popular worship songs in churches last year. Hmm. Going to do that next year on the Common Good AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life. Welcome back to the Common Good AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Uh, any big plans for the weekend? It's Friday. We're going to the weekend. Any big plans for you this weekend? Oh my gosh, so many plans. I don't think you're right. I don't I, think you're telling the truth, but do you have any plans? I I mean, I can't even keep them all straight. All the different places <laughs> we'll be going, things we'll be seeing. Gosh, where to even begin? Super Bowl. You go Super Bowl party or Super Bowl alone with your family or not even watch it at all? I don't think you're allowed to actually say that. We're what? supposed to call it the big game, I think. Oh, the big game that's yeah. taking place at 5 o'clock on Sunday or that's 6 right. o'clock. I think that's all going to be bleeped out. 
It's going to be your computer program. It's going to go, go big game. Are you a big party, big game person? Are you a? We've already talked about this this week. I just like championship games in general. Yeah. But I, I, yeah, I don't necessarily care that much about these teams. I know, but are you a big party guy? Like, I'm going to be in a party. We're going to watch it with a lot of other people, or is it like it's different with two little little kids? It's different. It's hard to, yeah. Um, Much gambling on the game for you this week? Oh yeah, (laughs) I'll put thousands of dollars down on it. No, (laughs) I am actually pretty surprised by how many of my friends who do that. Though I was like, is this a thing? A lot of my like, it just wasn't. It doesn't appeal to me. I do. Uh, I play. Uh, I play FanDuel with some guys every week. It's uh, yeah. It's fun. But I probably will not be placing wagers upon the big game this weekend. <laughs> it's probably good that you clarified that. <laughs> the big game. Well, uh, you, yeah. That's, do you have big plans? Are you a big party guy? You know, ever since my kids got old enough to like love the game, we tend to watch it at home together. Like we'll order Ooh, a pizza. Nice. And Carrie, uh, my wife, will like. She loves to like make like. Lots of appetizer food, and it turns into a bit of a thing for the family. Right, we'll so be over at five then. Come join us. Come join us. Just don't bring your two little kids. <laughs> That's the, a joke. I want them there. What, what am I supposed to? <laughs> They're old enough to watch themselves. <laughs> That's what I told. Never mind. <laughs> That's what you tried to tell your wife. No. <laughs> Let me tell you about the Global Leadership Network. The Global, global Leadership Network invites you to inspire your continued leadership growth at the GLS Next event series coming up next Tuesday, February the 4th, with uh, fresh, actionable insights for your leadership journey. Hearing from Nona Jones, Facebook's head of global faith-based partnerships, and Jason Dorsey, a prolific speaker and researcher on Gen Z and millennials. GLS Next is hosted by Danielle Strickland and will be held held in South Barrington starting at 2 p.m., next Tuesday. You can get your tickets today at globalleadership.org slash events. That's globalleadership.org slash events. So Sunday's coming. Church is coming. And there was just, you know, I found this just to be interesting. Uh, This uh, Faith Life Proclaim, a church presentation software from Faith Life They uh, released data on Wednesday showing the most popular worship songs of 2019 from the users of the software. So this is some data from uh, from a big group called like Faith Life to say these were the most downloaded. These are the ones that churches were using the most. Hmm. I want to read the list and tell me if you're surprised by the list at all, if if there's anything we can glean from this, or is this just an interesting list? Here we go. All right. I'm going to go from 10. We're going to go to number one. Uh, wow, that is something special. I know. That's a radio professional right there. Uh, number 10, Living Hope by Phil Wickham. I think it's pronounced Wickham. I do not know that song. Do you know? Oh, yeah. Sing it for us. I will not. Just a little. Mm-mm. Two bars. Nope. Three. No, thank you. One. Hard pass. Hum it. No. <laughs> number nine, uh, In Christ Alone. I know that one. I uh, like that. Sing it for us. In Christ Alone. Nailed it. <laughs> number eight. Uh, not just a good father, but a good, good father by Chris Tomlin. Uh, I like that song. It's also not written by Chris Tomlin. It says Chris Tomlin on here. It's not written by him. So why would his name be on it? Because he, he released it? I don't know. <laughs> do you know who wrote it? Like, yeah, House Fires. Really? Yeah. So it would be, li- do you, honestly, I'm asking because I don't know, would it be listed by him because he sang it? So singers have songwriters and. You know, it. I guess so. I know very little about like church licensing and all that, but it, there is. Trying to think of like a like a 
an example in pop culture. Mm, there's probably songs like I remember when um, when Smashing Pumpkins sang uh, that Fleetwood Mac song. Gosh darn it! What's the name of the song? The Dixie uh, Chicks also did it. Yes, uh, landslide. Landslide. Yeah, they were on a bunch of lists for that. Listed as Smashing Pumpkins. They didn't write the song, but That's they right. popularized it. It's probably the same thing here. Okay. Well, speaking of songs, Chris Tomlin did uh, number seven. How great is our God? Uh, number six, Hill songs. Who you say I am? Number five, All Sons and Daughters. Great are you, Lord? Mm-hmm. Isn't that an Amy Grant song? No. <laughs> I think she also has a great. Are That's you the Lord? thing about like worship hits. You're like. There's about 18 songs yeah, with yeah, that yeah. same title. Number four on the top 10 most sung worship songs of 2019 through Faith Life Proclaim. Uh, number 10, 10,000 Reasons by Matt Redman. No, that was not number 10. Number four, 10,000 Reasons <laughs> by Matt Redman. There's a lot of tens in there. <laughs> just just one. What if I said number 10, 4,000 Reasons by Matt Redman? would <laughs> be inconceivable, Brian. Uh, number three, This Is Amazing Grace, Phil Wickham, for the second time on the chart. Is it Wickham or is that actually Wickham? No, it actually is Wickham. Number two, What a Beautiful Name by Hillsong. And the number one most sung worship song of 2019, uh, Pat Barrett, Build My Life. Mm-hmm. You know that song? I do. Okay. Would I know that song? <sighs> yeah. Okay. Uh, you look at that list. Anything stand out to you? Anything surprise you? I know it's really random, but as two pastors and a lot of people who listen go to churches, I just found this interesting. Uh, okay, I'm what surprised. Do we, what do we do? I'm surprised to not see any reckless love up there. Oh. I know it's a couple years old, but man, oh man, that that surprised me. There's no Bethel on here at all. There is no Bethel. There's no elevation. Yes, um, that's surprising to me. Um, I thought for sure you'd be on there with all, <laughs> with all, the, all the singing you do. So here's an interesting part. The data revealed that more than half of the top 10 songs were written prior to 2019. Yeah, The oldest song on the list, In Christ Alone, was released in 2002. Additionally, the data showed the 10,000 Reasons, the most popular song of 2015 and 2017, had a tough year in 2016, (laughs) uh, made the top 10 for its fifth year in a row, and that only 21 songs have appeared in the top 10 list in the last five years. So only 21 in the last... Five years, they're just kind of switching spots. Yeah. Um, so in the last five years, the number one songs have been 10,000 Reasons, Good, Good Father, 10,000 Reasons, What a Beautiful Name, and now uh, Build My Life. Uh, Faith Life has also studied data from January of 2020 and predicts four new songs could make the list in 2020. Which, what I like about this list is none of those names or groups is yeah. on the list for the previous year, which is exactly my point. We're, we're seeing a little more diversity in the, uh, the people That's that are interesting. Those in songs category. being Waymaker by, is it Sinatch? I think I've it's Sinatch. I've never heard of them. Yeah. Uh, His Mercy is More by Matt Papa. Yes, I Will by Vertical Worship and Nothing Else. By Cody Carnes. And so, uh, now your church writes a lot of your own music, right? Mm-hmm. So do you also pull songs? Like, I'm very curious. And I, do you guys only write, like, do your songs, or is it a mix? Like, no, you no, take it's songs a mix. from here, it's a big mix. Yeah. I would say on average over the course of a year, it's probably 50 50. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We have a catalog um, that all the arts directors get to sort of draw from, and that catalog is updated and categorized. Um, but it, it is a way of, you know, it's a pretty big pond, but it still is a way of sort of ensuring some level of unity in that regard yeah. among 11 campuses. Yep. I wonder, so this is not part of this data, but I wonder if you were to make a larger list 
where some of the old school hymns come in. Yeah, right. um, Yeah, I wonder about that. So anyway, uh, I found this interesting. This is not groundbreaking news, but we all go to churches. (laughs) Most of us go to churches. Uh, and we don't know that probably all sorts of different levels of songs. Some of you were singing the newest songs on screen. Some of you are still using hymnals and all sorts of different things. And so when I read this, I found it interesting and, uh, listen for the songs that your worship leader chooses this week. See if they're in there. And, uh, and, uh, yeah, I was uh, listening to a podcast with NT Wright yesterday uh, about, uh, I guess the spirit. And somewhere in the middle of it, the guy that was hosting this Q and A, it made something, made some comment about Bethel, and NT Wright was like, "I'm sorry, I'm sorry, who?" <laughs> and the guy had to explain who, you know, Bethel and Bill Johnson were. And I was like, oh, I find that like weirdly refreshing." So here's someone that's, you know, in a lot of regards held up. Yes. And uh, so sometimes I think, you know, for you and I, some of these artists and songs yeah. are like really close to the canvas for us baseball. a little bit. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Well, coming up next, something that you were telling me about the other day, and I saw an article about Andy Stanley's uh, kind of uh, four-week, I think it was, sermon series on politics and the church. Uh, So we're going to work our way through that a little bit and see what we think. Coming up next year on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hey everyone, it's Ian Simpkins here, and after I had this experience with Thrivent where we were able to host this marriage conference with two other churches in the area, uh, my interest was kind of piqued with regards to what kind of organization this was, and it was really fascinating because they approached me, who was pastoring a church in Bartlett, and they said, we actually provide these free workshops for people that want to be wise with money and live generously. And so they sent me this link, and it was all these different topics, questions that people in my church actually were asking. And so it was remarkable. They hosted this workshop uh, a number of times in the coming months for people in our church to do just that, to to be wise with money and to live generously. And that's kind of how this relationship began because there was this no strings attached kind of mentality. It was just their heart to give back, to partner with pastors and churches to help people uh, live generously, to be wise with money and live generously. And that was kind of the continuation of my relationship with them. And so if you're interested in learning more, I can't encourage you enough to head to Thrivent.com today. It's last hour of Friday's show. Let's talk politics. Let's talk some Beth Moore and a pastor who has been at the same church for a really long time. You're listening to The Common Good. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Uh, Glad that you're joining us on this Friday evening. Hopefully you're driving home right now. you got big plans for the weekend, some rest, some relaxation, hopefully some worship. Hopefully you're going to find yourself in a church on Sunday morning. And uh, we're just praying it's a great time uh, for you. So you're the first one who tipped me off on this. Uh, Andy Stanley, uh, who just did, I believe it's a four-week sermon series talking politics, how Christians should handle politics and political differences uh, in advance of the presidential election. He said this, I have found it very difficult to stay away from the topic of religion in the church, explained Stanley during the first part of the series, but I found it very easy to stay away from the topic of politics in the church. <laughs> I can feel that in my own soul. Yeah. And so for someone like Andy Stanley, who has thousands upon thousands of people who not only listen to him on Sunday morning, but via podcast through the week, it's a big step to go. I'm going to do a sermon series on 
Uh, I'm going to step into that minefield right now. And you told me that you were just really impressed by that. I haven't listened to any of them yet, but you said, I don't know if you listened to all of them or some of them, but you said you really enjoyed them. Yeah, I haven't listened to all of them, but even just the promo that he and his wife made right. for them was really well done. And he he has um, a a measuredness to him mm-hmm. where it does sometimes feel, especially among like younger preachers, younger communicators, they're almost they're, they're almost too fired up for their own good to actually yeah. be able to do thread that needle or to effectively shepherd, you know, both ends of a spectrum. And I think Andy, whether you agree with his theology or even his right. conclusions or not, there's something to his methodology that feels very measured and prayerful. And again, I don't know him, but it just, it, it reads that way. Yep. And I saw a couple of them. They, they certainly, the sermons felt that way. Awesome. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to let you listen to two minutes of one of the sermons. I think, you, I think it was week two of yeah. his sermon series. And then we're going to walk through all four of them and just say, here was his main points. And as Ian said, you could disagree with them. Yeah, totally. Lord knows there's a lot of people who disagree with Andy Stanley, what he says on a weekly basis. Um, there's one thing you cannot deny. This man is a brilliant communicator. Oh, and, you can uh, deny that too if you want. There's one thing I will not deny. That's fair. Uh, so let's listen. Uh, it's about two minutes. Let's listen to this clip of uh, Andy Stanley. Republicans are absolutely convinced Jesus will be a Republican because of their values. Democrats would say, I absolutely, Jesus would be a Democrat because of his care and his concern for people. And so everybody wants a piece of Jesus. If I were given the assignment, Andy, could you come up with a sermon that would demonstrate that, in fact, the Republican Party and the Republican platform is in sync with the teaching of Jesus? I could do that. And if somebody else were to come along and say, Andy, would you create a sermon that shows that the, the Democrat platform and their values is in sync with the teaching of Jesus? I could do that, too. When you interpret the words of Jesus through your political filter, it's amazing. He's so red. He's so blue. It's amazing how often he agrees with you. So if you start with that filter, I mean, there's plenty. And the truth is both sides quote the Bible and both sides quote Jesus. The really funny thing is both sides actually use the same verses. Tony Evans, Tony Evans is a, is a famous pastor. When I was in graduate school, he was one of my professors. And he said something, this is almost 40 years ago. And I remember this. He said, Jesus did not come to take sides. He came to take over. But he said it a lot better than I just did, okay? It was so powerful, I never forgot that. And he's absolutely right. The kingdom of God will always, in some detail and at some level, conflict with the kingdoms of men. And the kingdom of God will always, at some level and some detail, conflict with your political party and the platform of your political party and our political candidates. There's always going to be a tension. And this is why it is absolutely foolish. It is so foolish for the church to ever be divided over a candidate or over a political party. Because at the end of the day, no political party is probably going to line up with the kingdom values of Jesus, although each party has a little bit of it, even though that's difficult for some of us to acknowledge. But again, it's foolish for us to be divided because we're supposed to be kingdom people first and political people second. Kingdom people first, political people second. That's mm-hmm. that, that preaches right there. That's right. strong. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> and so let's walk through his four... His first one, he says this, uh, love a political enemy unconditionally. He says, during the first sermon of the series, Stanley implored his congregation to, quote, look for an opportunity to love unconditionally someone with whom you disagree politically. He says, you're like, well, I don't even know anybody I disagree with politically. Stanley said, that's a problem. (laughs) That's why you haven't learned anything in 15 years. That's why you're so convinced you're right. You just can't understand 
I, I love that one. Uh, love somebody unconditionally who you disagree with politically. What are your, th- what are your thoughts on that one? My, uh, my brother brilliantly hosted a party. Um, gosh, this must have been oh, – when was this? Either way, it was – I think it was midterm elections and the parties – the entrance of the party required that you brought someone with you who voted differently. No way. Yeah. So it was like – Really intentionally, how do we, how do we actually have real time dialogue with people that we we know um, disagree with us on this policy or this particular topic or issue? And uh, I I think we need we need more we need more things like that, man. And so week two, listen, learn, and love. Uh, Stanley discussed what he considered the top three things that Christians should do better to interact with those who have different uh, views of them. If we could just learn to listen, learn, and love one another as opposed to yell uh, and caricature, uh, I think he's on to something here. Yeah, he says this goes back to Jesus' commandment. This goes back to the cross. This goes back to the epicenter of what we believe as Christians. I think I think to see all of that, which so often we talked about this a little bit yesterday, that Miss You Alliance article, yeah. we tend to separate these gospel truths from like how we engage with modern politics. Mm-hmm. And I think that's sometimes part of the problem. Week three, Stanley said Jesus does not belong to one political party. Uh, Stanley cautioned against trying to fit Christianity into any one political platform, Republican or Democrat. He said the issue Christians need to wrestle to the ground is not which party are you part of. The issue that every Jesus follower has to wrestle to the ground is this. Are we willing to put our faith filter ahead of our political filter? That's good. We do the world a huge disfavor, he said, when we wrap our political ideologies with the teachings of Jesus, and everybody tries to do this. He went on to warn that when we edit, when we parse, and when we filter Jesus to fit a party platform, we rob the world of the message that changed the world. We cannot be first and foremost party people. We must be kingdom people who are willing to influence our parties. Yeah, lastly, how to choose between two evils. As part of the January 26th sermon, uh, Stanley told his congregation that it is okay to support a given political party or candidate provided uh, they call out troubling aspects of their agenda. When forced to choose between the lesser of two evils, you still have to call out the evil, said the pastor, not for our sake and not even for our party's sake, but for the world's sake. When forced to choose between two imperfect candidates, two imperfect platforms, and imperfect planks with, uh, within the platform, we have to call out those imperfections. He goes on. Well, the article goes on. And says this echoes the comments of Southern Baptist Convention President J.D. Greer, who talked about, um, who told the Christian Post in an interview last May that churches quote have to be clear on the things that we disagree with as much as we champion the things we agree with in our particular uh, candidate, which I think is probably what's happening more frequently if i had to guess maybe that's cynical i feel like there's a lot more that i observe about what we disagree with and what yeah. we actually do align on but maybe maybe that's just the uh the curation of my particular stream and i think uh, a andy stanley go back and listen to some of this uh but i think a it was gutsy you know to 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 do this sermon series but b so timely because when I mean, you and i keep chuckling with it more and more it feels like uh that uh Republican or Democrat, the church needs to look different, right? Uh, I think you said it a couple weeks ago. We already have a Lord. <laughs> like we already have yeah. a Lord. And so yeah. be political, uh, but don't necessarily be partisan. Uh, what is just one, the minute we have left, what's just one word of wisdom you'd give to people who are like, I'm totally partisan guy. I'm like so fired up right now. I just want to, you know the person I'm talking about, not yeah. the specific, but the type. What's one word of caution or advice you'd give to them? I mean, I'd go back to what my brother modeled. 
I think it's easy to feel like you're an activist because you post clever things online, but mm-hmm. to actually get coffee with or break bread with or have a, a conversation face to face with someone that you disagree with doesn't mean it won't get heated. But, you know, as the Brene Brown quote famously goes, people are hard to hate up close. Mm-hmm. I think so often this has been the heartbeat of the show since day one. You know, how do we invite people out of the echo chambers to really it doesn't mean that an hour long cup of coffee is going to change any of your convictions, right. but it might change the way we hold those convictions yeah. or the way that we talk about them. And I think uh, as Christ followers, like the ends justify the means is not a Christian ethic. It is not. So we so often are like, well, I'm right. So that means I can be right however I want to be. Like right. you can be right in the wrong way. Mm. And when we're not careful about that, and I think one of the ways to grow in that is to surround ourselves, not all the time, but to intentionally have dialogue and conversation with people who look and talk and act and vote differently than we do. Yes. And that's hard. It's uncomfortable, but I, I think it's, it's the necessary. the of the church. Yep. Absolutely. That's a good word. Well, uh, we'd encourage you to find him wherever you get your podcast. So go ahead, subscribe, rate, review to The Common Good, and then listen to Andy Stanley's sermons from this past week. I think it will be challenging and uh, you will enjoy it. Coming up next, uh, Beth Moore wrote some power- powerful stuff at Christianity Today we're going to discuss here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Happy Friday. Glad to have you here with us today. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. Find us on Twitter at Common Good Talk Podcast, wherever it is you want to get your podcast. Go ahead, subscribe, rate, review. Over this past week, we've had some great uh, interviews, so you can get those on the podcast and uh, or just some of the things we've talked about. Uh, so yeah, we'd be glad for you to do it. See, even you are less excited about just you and I talking <laughs> or just, you're like, fun. there's also dumb old Ian and Brian <laughs> just shooting the breeze. <laughs> it's just when they couldn't find other guests, <laughs> they couldn't find them. They just talked. Yeah. This wall's a weird color of gray. <laughs> Anywho, lost my when, tail again. Pooh bear. Our next guest. <laughs> It started to turn like less Eeyore and more Sling Blade. <laughs> I like them French fried potatoes. Mm-hmm. Somebody get us a gist. <laughs> Some people call it a Kaiser Blade. I call it a Sling Blade. Mm-hmm. Oh, it well. Must, it must be Friday. <laughs> it, it, yeah. We're, we're on the home stretch here. I'm uh, going to talk about an article in Christianity Today uh, uh, that was very well written, as always, by Beth Moore. But before we do that, you've got some things to tell us about In Touch Ministries. I sure do. I don't know if you uh, were aware of this, Brian, but uh, it's 2020. I'm, I've heard. The new year is not only upon us. Still we can't are... believe it's 2020. Really? It just sounds like a, every time you write it, it's like, oh, 2020. <laughs> really? <laughs> every, <see>. every time? <laughs> some of the time. You're just dropping <laughs> pens all over 20, the place. 20, I'm like, I got to sit back. <laughs> I was, it must be so fun to watch you write checks. <laughs> ah, ah! You just you still write checks. I Kramer the, the whole time. I wrote a check the other day going, how do you write out the word? Okay, I got it. I got it. I don't even know where our checks are. Uh, so the New Year's here is 2020, even though it's blowing Brian's brain. Uh, and our friends at In Touch Ministries want to give you a complimentary wall calendar called Blessed to Be the Church featuring Charles Stanley's or Chuck Stanley, as some of us refer to him as, original photography of churches around Nobody the world. Calls him that. You don't think so? Nope. No one calls him Chucky S? Nope. Not even his wife and kids. Weird for his kids to. That would be the strangest people to call him that name, I won't say again. Uh, An inspirational Bible verse from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and a motivational quote from Dr. Stanley and Company. Each and every photo. Get yours today. Guess the cost, Brian. 
Uh, $11.74. So random. No, it's free at 1160hope.com slash contest. Plus, everyone who signs up will be entered to win a copy of the Charles Stanley Life Principles Bible. So sign up. Not tomorrow. Not next week. Do it now. Today. Do it today at 1160hope.com slash contest. You got me. I'm, I'm, uh, I think I'm going to do that this weekend. You you uh, you got me excited about that. You know when I asked you what, what you thought the cost was, and you said eleven. I thought for sure you were going to say eleven sixty, and then you go eleven seventy four. That was a missed opportunity. <laughs> oh, we well, should practice these before we go. On. You're like, what would you pay for this? Uh, Five sixty. <laughs> <laughs> we may not be allowed to do that. Actually, that's just <laughs> be reading it up. Do you know what I find this calendar very positive and encouraging? <laughs> That's the answer. <laughs> I think we're all out of time. Oh, we were sad before. We're happy now. We're feeling pretty moody today, but here we go. Uh, <laughs> Beth Moore. Moody. Which, why when we when someone talks about like mood swings, they're almost always just talking about the negative aspect, right? No one never like swings into elated, Interesting. Right? It's always whatever. I don't have an answer for that, but you are right about that. Thank you. Thank you, you for are, you acknowledging. You were calling out a, a, a blind spot, I think, in our terminology there. <laughs> You're never like, that guy's moody. Like, look how happy he got. Yeah, right. Mood swings is always swinging to the to the bad side of things. It never swings into joyful. Right, I'm going to do, do it on my part to try to change that. So I'm going to mm. call my wife moody. Like, when she's happy. Laughing. Oh, like, I do You're not. You're pretty moody today. Nope, I don't you recommend think that'll this. go well? No, I'm at DL moody. <laughs> theologically rigorous. <laughs> Oh, so Beth Moore, uh, <laughs> I don't know how she has the uh, the time. The, you ever like read people and you're like, you produce so much content in your life that it makes me feel like I'm not doing anything. Like, oh, yeah. She's constantly writing and speaking and producing content and tweeting unbelievably yeah, like, challenging things. Like, like Jim Minardi. <laughs> right? No, not Oh, not like, oh, okay. <laughs> oh, it's Friday. Uh, but Beth Moore wrote at Christianity Today, uh, and it's uh, entitled this, God uses your mistakes for good. God uses your mistakes for good. And she starts by telling a great story about how uh, she made the decision when things were really going well in her ministry and more more people were coming to her events. She said, at my events, I'm going to fast. I'm going to fast from Friday's dinner until Saturday dinner over this event. Hmm. And she's like, God's certainly going to bless that move, right? And then she talked about how she almost fainted because she wasn't – she was getting up to speak with no food. And she Gosh. talks about how God's not transactional in that way. Yeah, but right, right. I just want to end – I want to read the ending uh, thing that she says because it's so well written. And I wonder your thoughts on this. She says, uh, to, to our great relief. Even rotten fruit finds a place in the vineyard. In the efficient economy of cultivation, nothing is wasted. The vine dresser does a curious thing with the rotten fruit. He turns it back into the soil and there underground. By some spectacular organic miracle of nature, it fertilizes a future harvest. Hmm. Isn't that so well written? Yeah. But this concept about even how rotten fruit decomposes and becomes part of rich soil. And her point is, like, even the mess-ups you've had in your life, even the things where you drop the ball, even where, uh, you know, you, you were even your sin, whatever, the past regrets of your life, that God can use them uh, to produce good fruit in your life and the life of others. 
Uh, how do you think our lives would be different, people's lives would be different if we actually believed what she's writing here? How, how does this begin to change things? You know, one of the things, she doesn't say this explicitly, but a, a distinction that I think is really important because I, I feel like the, the use of fruit in Christian subculture can become so commonplace that we mm-hmm. don't even really know what we're saying. I do think it's significant that the Bible speaks of bearing fruit, not producing fruit. Uh-huh. I think that shift is really important, yeah. especially... And we've talked about some of the the workaholic tendencies of pastors, but I don't think that's unique to pastors. I think yeah. we all feel that. The idea that, like, I need to generate and create these good things yeah. when, like, John, for example, is often using words like abide. Mm-hmm. It's like, man, you're running yourself ragged. And I'm not saying there aren't seasons to, like, hustle, like, work hard. And sometimes sleep might not be as much as you. I, I think that can be even appropriate and God-honoring. But – the sense that I need to be producing this good fruit rather than bearing good fruit, which I think carries with it the implication that the Holy Spirit in me is is now being manifest in these other ways. Um, I think that has less to do with like me making it happen, me mm, that's good. grinding it out in yep. order for this to you know. Even when we look at the you know the list of the fruit of the Spirit, uh, I think it was Deb Hirsch who said we, we need to recognize that um, gentleness is a fruit of the spirit, not a feminine quality. Mm. Like we so often want to like take the ones that we like and then dismiss the ones that we don't. Yeah, yeah. You know, they're not the fruits of the spirit. It isn't like, here's a list of a few and yeah. maybe you'll get a couple of them. Like, no, this is the fruit of a Holy Spirit soaked life. And I think that's some of what she's getting after here about God not being transactional, but also I think that bearing and producing fruit uh, tension is is worth kind of drilling down on. Yeah, I, I do. that's really well put. I think sometimes... Like she says earlier, the transactional part. If I do this, God's God's always going to do this. He's but, obligated to exactly. do it, right? But then, then this whole concept of regret and shame, and you know, sometimes people we hear it all the time from people like in our churches, like God could never uh, love me. God could never, uh, you know, use me to make a difference in this world and other people's lives. And, and I think Beth Morg here gives us a really great uh, reminder uh, that that even the bad fruit in our lives becomes fertilizer for, for later good fruit. God, God redeems, God does great things. And I think I I know there's people out there that need to hear that. I need to hear that in my life at times, but there are some people who are just like, God can't love me. We we hear it so often. And again, Beth Moore so beautifully writes, you're not defined by your worst fruit to use her imagery or your best fruit or your best fruit. Uh, and use that word abide with our like 30 seconds here. Uh, give a, give a, uh, how do you abide? I know that's a sermon. That's a sermon, and I told you in 30 seconds. Yeah. But how do you abide? Because that is the biblical call to bear fruit, right? Abide in me. Yeah, and I think John Mark Comer's The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry is a really good place to start. Things like uh, establishing a rule of life. It's Sabbath. It's simple things like reading Scripture before grabbing her phone. It's um, at times maybe letting your car be a sanctuary, turning the radio off. I mm. think it's... I think it's posture. I think it's practice. I think it's rhythms. I think it's habits. I think those are the ways that we abide. But sometimes it's not doing any of that. It's just simply, I mean, really at its core, the word abide in in the Koine Greek just means to spend time with. Yeah. I don't. Th- I think we overcomplicate it sometimes that it has to look a certain way. Sometimes for me, abiding is is riding my bike. True. Like I just, I am just, you know, not now, but the, the idea that I'm like, <laughs> yeah. I'm just, it's just me, my thoughts, and God. Like that, that feels. Like that can be as much worship as any gathering in a cathedral. Oh, that's helpful. That's helpful. Well, uh, take a look at this article, Beth Moore. She beautifully writes, as she always does. Would love to have you read it uh, for nothing else than to be encouraged. Uh, Coming up next, uh, Gospel Coalition wrote an article about a pastor 
uh, about his longtime endurance. I, you're never going to believe how long this man has been pastoring a, at one church consecutively. Coming up next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really happy to have you joining us today on this Friday. Uh, before we jump in, I just find this story so encouraging. We're going to do about a, the faithful endurance of a particular pastor and some lessons we can learn from that. Uh, let me tell you about the Global Leadership Network. The Global, Global Leadership Network invites you to inspire your continued leadership growth at the GLS Next event series coming up next Tuesday, February the 4th, with uh, fresh, actionable insights for your leadership journey. Hearing from Nona Jones, Facebook's head of global faith-based partnerships, and Jason Dorsey, a prolific speaker and researcher on Gen Z and millennials. GLS Next is hosted by Danielle Strickland and will be held held in South Barrington starting at 2 p.m. next Tuesday. You can get your tickets today at globalleadership.org slash events. That's globalleadership.org slash events. Five lessons, uh, Gospel Coalition wrote about this, five lessons on faithful endurance from a longtime pastor. Let me tell you about this pastor because I read this article and I was like, oh my goodness. Uh, So here's what this author writes. He writes, when I became a pastor 12 years ago, I quickly realized the dropout rate among pastors is high. And that's very true. Statistics vary, but I've personally known several pastors who left the ministry for one reason or another. Sometimes we forget though, The pastors who've persevered in faithful ministry for decades, my friend Dave Lewis is an example. Dave Lewis has pastored, are you ready for this, the same church for more than 66 years. He began at the Bald Eagle Alliance Church near Tyrone, Pennsylvania in 1953 and has never left. I estimate he's preached close to 10,000 sermons to his congregation not to mention countless sermons elsewhere. He writes, I could be wrong, but Dave may have served his church longer than any living pastor in America. When I first met Dave, he writes, I asked him about the secret of his longevity. He replied, the will of God and the grace of God. Mm -hmm. His simple answer hints at a profound truth. It's not God's will for every pastor to spend his entire ministry at one church. But in Dave's case, however, God ordained that he'd have a lifetime ministry at one church. And such a long ministry is only possible through the sustaining grace of God. So then he writes, here are five lessons that I've seen modeled in Dave's ministry. Before we highlight that, don't you find that amazing? One church, 66 years, never left. Well, I was telling you the week you were gone, uh, I had my good friend, Pastor Daryl Malcolm, on the show, and he just celebrated 70 years in full-time vocational ministry. Not all at the same church, but certainly, I was mentioning off-air too, uh, I think it was my first or second week as lead pastor at Poplar Creek Church. We celebrated their 60 years of ministry, and that contrast was so helpful for me. Here I am, you know, 14 days into this thing, yes, and they're celebrating six decades. And, yeah, I can say with confidence we disagreed, certainly at times, sometimes aggressively, but (laughs) that was really, really uh, a gift to me and our church to have somebody with that kind of history and that kind of longevity in ministry to have wisdom and perspective and insight. And, uh, yeah, I'm really – 
grateful for, for pastors like this. It's crazy. I mean, this guy, 90 years old. That means he started at this church at 24 and has never left it. That's unreal. Yeah, that really is crazy. So they write, here are five lessons that this author has seen modeled in Dave's ministry. I thought this would be just encouraging and helpful to go through because it's not just for pastors. Like the real question is, how do we endure even in our faith? How do we yeah. endure uh, as uh, just... Just following Jesus, whether you're a pastor, a plumber, yeah. uh, a teacher, a CEO, a stay-at-home mom or dad, whatever you are. Well, number two is kind of for pastors. <laughs> Correct. Correct. So this is written towards pastors, but you'll find nuggets to get here. Let me start with number one. Uh, love people. Dave truly loves people. Uh, when I ask him about his church members, he has nothing but good things to say about them. They're the most loving and gracious people a pastor could ever ask for. Even after all those years, deep affection remains between Dave and his people. This unique, genuine love is refreshing, and I've seen firsthand how it's manifested in his church. What a simple one, but a really difficult one. Love your people. And number two, he has uh, developed a passion for preaching. So Dave recently turned 90, but he still has a fire in his belly that drives him to serve and preach the gospel. I've only heard him preach once, but it was a solid exposition filled with gospel hope. When we meet together, he always shares either what he just preached or what he's planning um, preaching in the coming week. It's clear he can't wait to share the riches he's discovered from his study of God's word. Even after 66 years of preaching and shepherding, the fire has not dimmed. Yeah. Number three, covet, hosp- uh, covet humility. Dave is a humble man. You will try in vain to find him on the internet. Dave is what we might call old school but he's a true shepherd and knows nothing of the self-promotion we often see today. I'm not, by no means exalting Dave. He doesn't want anyone to look to him or to any other man. And instead, uh, he'd have us look to Christ and his power to save. Uh, too many pastors, the author writes, start off wanting to be the next Piper or the next Tim Keller. Uh, it's fine to have good models in pastoral ministry, but it's helpful to try to emulate. Uh, but it's unhelpful to try to emulate their ministry success. God calls pastors to be faithful, to be diligent. To serve with endurance, knowing the Lord of glory will reward their labors. Humility, powerful. Number four, pay attention to your physical health. Uh, mm-hmm. Dave strives to take good care of his body. Obviously, you're not going to last as long as he has if you don't take care of your body. Even at 90, uh, Dave still golfs on occasion, and Dave still was still playing intramural basketball into his mid-60s. These <laughs> are just a couple of ways he's tried to stay active and healthy. I learned the importance of good health. Uh, the hard way four years ago, ministry stress was really getting to me and recreation and exercise had all but disappeared from my lifestyle. I ended up in the hospital with a serious heart condition that required nearly a year of recovery. I'm thankful for how scripture helps us keep the right perspective here. Paul exhorted Timothy, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The last thing a pastor should do is make an idol out of his body. However, he must take care of himself when it comes to diet and exercise. That's right. I think I need to tell my uh, my elders, hey, uh, longevity for me will be fueled by more golf, is what mm, I just read there. Hey, good luck. Good luck with that. <laughs> Number five, read good books. Dave is always telling me about the latest book he's reading and what they're teaching him. Early in our friendship, he told me, read Bunyan, Newton, Spurgeon, and Tozer. Tozer. Dave is a voracious reader and tends to read widely, but those are his favorite authors. Looking Mm. at Dave's library, it's striking how few contemporary authors he reads. Like (laughs) C.S. Lewis, Dave cautions against chronological snobbery and the notion that latest is greatest. Every pastor should strive to supplement his time in the Word with good and solid books. Reading. That's a good one. (laughs) What I like about these— That's a hot take, Brian. What I like about these is they're so simple. But I look at those, I go, yeah, what's the last book? What am I reading right now? Yeah, Yeah. not much— Am I taking care of my body? I don't know. Am I human? Like I'm challenged. 
challenged by each one of these, even though they're really simple. What's one or two that you uh, kind of are, are ones that jump out to you? I think the one that jumps out to me is to eat more chocolate. <laughs> I, just, I just really, the wisdom of him to say that just feels like he's speaking right to my soul. Chocolate and bacon. Chocolate and bacon. That'll, that'll the, be it. Uh, yeah, they're all convicting in very different ways um, and at different times. Uh, probably the physical activity one. I think that's that's str- the struggle for me is to finding time. Yes. Uh, as I imagine, that's the struggle for everybody, right? But yeah. there's like there's a couple of people. There's a guy on staff who was uh, one of the guest hosts while you were gone, actually, John Hughes, who just has like an incredible rubric and rhythm of like keeping track of these things and how he counts calories and his budget and time with his kids and meal prep and fitness and he's climbing a mountain this year and i'm just like can you just be my life coach just show me how to i feel very grateful to be around people who are living these things much better than i am and like hoping there's i can buy roses yeah a little bit that's the hope who is it? Craig Grishel, who like leads one of the biggest churches in the country, which actually gives you probably a little more free time. Because, uh, but he, what was it? He was at the gym every day at three thirty, no matter what. You're yeah. Like, wow, that's pretty regimented. That's pretty good. Which uh, again is a life stage thing, right? Exactly. I don't, you know, with a one and two year old at home right now, I'm trying to give myself a little bit of grace. And you've yeah. said things, and you know, about like it's a stage. It You're going to have to hunker down for a little while. No like, doubt. Okay. Here's how they end the article. The article here, I encourage you to read it at our Facebook page. Few pastors will ever spend their entire ministry at one church. Dave Lewis is unique, and I praise God for his life and ministry. There are many more pastors who've been faithful over the years. Perhaps you've been privileged to know a man like that, uh, but it's a safe bet. Most are unknown to the world, except for the people and communities they serve. Hmm. Uh, we should praise God for faithful men and women, but if we're looking for the best model to follow, look no further than Jesus. He's the ultimate good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. Every pastor should strive to emulate him, serving in the grace and strength only he can give. I like how that wraps up because you can read these, like, all right, I was going to emulate Keller. I was going to emulate this. Now I'm going to emulate Dave Lewis. Like, I'm going to do this. And they're saying, no, be faithful to your people where you're called. Not all of you are going to be there for 60, 65 years. But it's same for the rest of us. Just as you're living the journey of life, uh, you know, long obedience in the same direction. Like, rhythms are important and all the things we talk about here often uh, we want to see you uh strong in your faith as uh as much as you are now but at the end uh, to keep running so well dave lewis he had great things to say we're just gonna take a little right hand turn and end the show we the same way we always do crazy stories we found on the internet interweb insanity coming up next year on the common good am 1160 hope for your life here's some weird stuff we found on the internet Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. That music can only mean one thing. It's the end of the show, the end of the week. And we do it the same way every day. Interweb insanity. Crazy stories from the internet found by our producer, John, by our executive producer, Keith Conrad. Uh, Disclaimer, we have not read them either, but we're ready to laugh with you to send you off into the weekend uh, just with some craziness. Ian, why don't you go first? Why don't I? Go ahead. <laughs> you just talking to yourself over there? Do you need a second? Whenever I say, why don't you go first, you always go, why don't I? Mm, that doesn't sound like me. <laughs> uh, Indonesia, Indonesian preacher claims meth is halal, gets busted for drug dealing. Ahmad Marzuki, who worked uh, at an Islamic boarding school on the Indonesian island of Madura, northeast Java, reportedly told his students that the drug referred to commonly as meth Increases one's motivation to study and recite the Quran, Vice News reported. 
Marzuki had issues um, and Islamic rooting or fatwa that meth is halal, permissible under Islamic law because it is not explicitly forbidden. I know methamphetamine is illegal under national law, but I found no evidence against it in the Quran, Marzuki said at the press conference upon his request. The religious leader, religious teacher faces up to 20 years in jail. He had been dealing with the illegal drug for two months before police caught on to his operations. Now, as I was saying, uh, drugs are bad, okay? Yeah, I'm like, I could have seen that one. That one, that story had a lot of hard words in it. Yeah. I'm glad you took that one. (laughs) Next one's out of California. UC Berkeley course in adulting is so popular, it's turning students away. We've done uh, an article or a segment on this. Did we? Mm -hmm. UC Berkeley is offering a class in adulting. Basic life skills young people may have missed until college provided a wake-up call. The class is so popular, it's turning students away. I want to feel prepared. Like, I know what I'm doing, and I know how to be an adult, said Allegra Estrada, who is a pre-med junior at Cal. You can know as much as you want about physics or biology or English, but that doesn't help you when you need to do taxes and figure out what to eat. Monday night, a new eight-week session in adulting is beginning. We're going to have guest speakers, said instructor Bell Lau, laying out the topics, managing time and money, and improving relationships. Other areas include fitness, nutrition, and mental health. I weep for the future. This is a good thing. Yeah. Okay. I think it's good. Uh, Morocco, Massachusetts woman sues TripAdvisor after falling off camel in Morocco. Hmm. Rianne Ayala, 24, is accusing the Massachusetts-based travel website. Oh, I did not know that it was based out of Massachusetts. And it's San Francisco-based subsidiary Viator. Viator? I'm going Viator, but I could be Viator. <sighs> Isn't that also the name of Austin Massey's coffee company? No idea. That was another guest while you were gone. From the last time you were gone. How much have you been gone this year? Too much. Not, not, not enough. Do <laughs> you want to try again? Just right. <laughs> Thanks, Goldilocks. Uh, of negligence and breach of contract for falling, failing geez, to ensure the tour company was operating safely, the Boston Globe reported. Ayala and her family booked a Sunset Camel tour in... You got all the hard words today. Marrakech. Oh, I like how you did that. Through Viator, according to the lawsuits filed Monday, she said she was told by the tour company that the camel she was riding was pregnant and a month away from giving birth. During the tour, the camel ran away from the caravan, causing Ayala to fall and break her arm. Yikes. According to the lawsuit, Ayala's attorney, Andrew Abraham, said the client was hanging on the side and then fell off. I unfriend you. That's not how it works. That's not how any of this works. Really, <laughs> TripAdvisor's fault? Um, I don't uh, you know. Probably man. Can't you can't sue a random camel you, company. You can sue whoever you want. Oh, yeah. Okay, that seems that seems odd. I feel badly for her falling off a camel. Same. I got to read it or I ride a camel when I went into the Holy Lands when I was in college. Like you're just rubbing the stuff in. They are scary. Camels? You would think like when they get up, they're really kind of all over the place. I can see that. If I would have been freaked out if it ran. Were you riding drunk camels? Is that was that part of the? Uh... No, but they start like on their knees, and you get on, and like when they get up, they don't get straight up. They like really rocks. Once you're going, they're really. Oh, easy. okay, okay. Like the whole getting up and getting off them. California, FBI raids Los Angeles church at center of investigation into marriage fraud. Oh boy! Two people were arrested in an FBI raid at the Kingdom of Jesus Christ Church in Los Angeles. The raid was part of an investigation into human trafficking and marriage fraud at the Philippines-based church. The leader of the church was taken into custody on immigration fraud charges, and another worker was arrested for allegedly confiscating passports from the victims of the scheme. The FBI accused church leaders of recruiting immigrants to help fundraise for the church and setting them up with sham marriages so they could stay in the United States. 
over a, this isn't a funny one over a 20 year no. period the FBI, FBI believes the church facilitated 82 fraudulent marriages marriage marriage is what brings us together yeah, today marriage you know they could have used oh still going that dream within mm. our dream oh boy we're done done yeah okay <laughs> Could have used a little love and respect. <laughs> Am I right? Uh, yeah. Am I right? Am I right there? <laughs> okay, Vermont. Last but not least, build to allow emoji on license plates could be a boon for Vermont, supporters say. A new bill that could allow Vermont drivers to add a smiley face, a heart, or maybe another symbol to the license plates could drum up interest from visitors as well as potential revenue for the state, according to some supporters. The bill, which was introduced this month by State uh, Representative Repu- uh, Rebecca White D. Hartford, Oh, yeah. Wow. First day reading. (laughs) I I thought, you know, it was like a hyphen last name thing. D. Hartford. (laughs) Oh, man. Is it the weekend yet? It's coming. Just finish this Uh, one and we're done. Would allow drivers to choose one of six emojis to put on their license plates. The emoji would not replace existing text on a license plate. That's good. It'd be hard to run plates. That's a cop you're having to run like. Smiley face. Poop emoji. Go get him. You just had to go right there, huh? But instead would sit under or next to the lettering. Shut up and take my money. Okay. It's funny that that's really, I would never have really guessed that it'd be a big, like, revenue generating move, but maybe it will be. And license plates. There you go. There you go. Well, have a great weekend, man. (laughs) Thanks. It's been a good week, and uh, we're excited that you all chose to join us. Come back on Monday between 4 and 6 for Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.